What can an archaeologist, an orthodontist, and an 11-year-old girl tell us about Periclean Athens? We're talking death, disease, and facial reconstruction in this episode of Footnoting History. Hi, I'm Kirsty, and welcome to Footnoting History. In the first half of the 5th century BC, Greece had a huge problem with Persian infestation. Since exterminators had not been invented yet, they did the next best thing, and in 478 they founded the Delian League, which was a conglomeration of the city-states of Greece centered around the island of Delos. Almost immediately, Athens began using the Delian League to enforce its own interests and agenda, sort of de facto creating an Athenian empire. Now, in 454, Pericles, the great Athenian statesman, went so far as to move the treasury from Delos to Athens, allowing for such vital defense projects as building the Parthenon with those funds. As you can imagine, this was not necessarily incredibly popular with many of the other members of the League, and in 431, the Peloponnesian War broke out between Athens and her allies and Sparta and hers. Now, one of the things that Athens had built during that time frame for its own defense was a series of long walls that started around the actual city of Athens and continued for a couple of miles down to its port. These were called the Long Walls of Athens, and they were started around 460 BC. On a side note, it's almost impossible to talk about these walls without drawing an incredibly phallic shape on the blackboard, which invariably keeps undergraduate attention. These walls were vital for Athenian defense because they connected to Athens's pride and joy, its navy. Pretty much during the Persian War, it was established that you did not want to face Athens on the sea, but you certainly did not want to face Sparta on land. The Persians learned that the hard way, and Athens intended to learn from it in advance. Once Sparta declared war in 431, Pericles's great plan for Athenian defense involved gathering everybody from the surrounding countryside within the long walls. In theory, this would be great because contact with the port would allow the city to continue to get supplies and allow it to withstand a very long siege. In practice, it didn't work out quite so well. It turns out that the area around Athens was quite densely populated, and so taking everybody into the walls led to a severe crowding issue. People were stacked like cordwood, essentially, in all of the public areas within the city. This was not necessarily hygienic. In 430, a plague broke out in the city and completely decimated the population. The plague was recorded by the historian Thucydides, who really deserves a podcast of his own for his very interesting and sordid life. For the moment, it suffices to say that he exists as one of the first historians to take a very human view of events rather than blaming things on gods. He sees the plague as the direct result of man. In this case, of one man, Pericles. He contrasts the behavior of Athenians during the plague with the expectations set up by Pericles in a very formal speech given at the public funeral of fallen soldiers during the campaigning season the year before. He documents the symptoms of the plague, such as fever, chills, vomiting, diarrhea, uh, and maintains that he himself contracted the disease and survived it. So far, this is all ancient history, though, quite literally. How does this connect to an orthodontist in the 21st century? 
To answer that question, we have to turn to the subway, really. In 1994 and 1995, there was work being conducted around the metro station at Karamaikos in Greece. In the process of excavating this area, they discovered a mass grave. As is the normal operating procedure when something like this is discovered in the course of routine uh, maintenance and construction, they called in a group of archaeologists led by Effie Bazitopoulou Valavani. She dated the mass grave to 430 to 426 BC, centering it directly in the path of the Athenian plague. What's more, she and her team discovered a skull. Not just any skull, a very well-preserved skull, complete with its lower jaw. This skull belonged to a small child, probably about the age of 11. She still had her baby teeth. As with many girls that age, she definitely could benefit from the expertise of an orthodontist. I know I could have. Ms. Bastopolu Valavani contacted Manoli Papagrigorakis, but not for the reason you might think. It turns out that skulls so well-preserved, and especially with such teeth, often contained within the pulp of the teeth additional information about the way in which the person died. And so the search began. Over the course of the next 10 years, they determined that this girl had died from typhoid fever, thus giving a name to the terrible disease that Thucydides had documented and survived. Most of the plague's victims were obviously not as fortunate as Thucydides. In fact, not only was this little girl a victim of the plague, but Pericles himself had died in 429. The research team named this little girl Myrtus. And the work done with her is an excellent example of what happens when people break down the walls between disciplines. Not only is this a matter of history and archaeology, but by involving a modern doctor, a modern orthodontist, we were able to extract the information that we would need in order to determine the answer to a mystery that had been plaguing historians for over 2,000 years. The point really is, by gathering a group of diverse professionals together, we were able to provide an answer to a historical problem. But that's not all that Myrtis was willing to give us. Dr. Papagrigoraikis contacted some Swedish specialists who had a 3D printer and spoke to them about recreating Myrtis's skull, recreating her and bringing her facial features to life. That work started in 2007 and took a few years to come to completion. This is the first time that anyone from ancient Greece who is not important, essentially a layperson, could be recreated. It took 66 hours for the 3D printer to produce an identical representation of her skull, including a few minor holes that were there when her body was dug up. Once that work was completed, then standard forensic science could develop from the skull the muscles and the features that once were part of her physical appearance. Some factors, like the shape of one's nose, the shape of one's ears, eye color, hair color, cannot necessarily be fully represented from marks left on the skull. However, when rebuilding Myrtis, they went ahead and used sort of average, uh, average looks from people who live in that area today. As a result, Myrtis emerged with reddish-brown hair and brown eyes and an olive complexion. In fact, she looks very much like a modern child. 
She did have some dental issues, and those remain part of her recreation today, which does affect her facial shape just a little bit. Despite that, almost two and a half millennia after her death, she has come into her own. She's part of a traveling exhibit that brings Periclean Athens to life, and the United Nations Regional Information Center has actually made her a friend of the Millennium Development Goals, and they've used her in the UN campaign, We Can End Poverty. Here she's been given a voice, a chance to help us prevent the same diseases that killed her in the world today. I'd say that's pretty good work for an 11-year-old. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.